Well, our scripture readings have led us through Mark 15 this evening, and we've seen there the events that took place on that Good Friday, the trial of Jesus, the beatings, the mockery, the crucifixion, more mockery, and his death. But how from the passage itself do we know that that day was good? Why call Good Friday good? Well, we know that it is good in part from the songs that we sang in between those readings. And we would know that it is good if we simply read on further into Mark's gospel account to find that Jesus not only is in the tomb, but out of the tomb and alive. So we can look ahead in Mark, ahead of Mark 15, to see that Good Friday was good. But we can also see that it's good by looking back, by looking back in Mark's account. I'd like to take us this evening to Mark 14, to the two days before Good Friday. In Mark 14, you could say the writing was on the wall. Do you know that saying from the book of Daniel? It's in our vocabulary uh, today in our world. The writing is on the wall. It comes from the Bible. It's not right here in our passage, but it, it applies to our passage. The writing was on the wall in Mark 14 about Jesus' soon coming death. Of course, Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection several times before. Notably, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10... I leave you to go hunting for the exact references where Jesus so poignantly and so clearly predicts his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. But certainly by the chapter, by, by chapter 14, that, 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 that certainty of death is gaining ground. It's becoming more and more obvious and more and more inescapable. The writing is on the wall, and we could say, If the writing's on the wall, it's as if God has written it himself. So in Mark 14, we learn something about the goodness of that dark Friday by seeing God as the chief operator of these events and Jesus not at all a helpless victim. The certainty of his death is not because the circumstances were growing out of his control, But the certainty of his death is because he was indeed in control and he had purposes for his death. So we'll also see in Mark 14 some of Jesus' own explanation of the meaning of the cross, the meaning of his death. What was it for? What did it accomplish? And what did it change? We don't actually find that in chapter 15. We find it in chapter 14 for one. Let's back up a couple of days before in Mark 14. And I'll tell you up front that the passage is going to take us into three rooms. Three rooms. We'll see the house of a leper. We'll see the, the chamber of the priests. And then, most importantly, the upper room. Read along with me if you have a Bible. Chapter 14 of Mark, starting in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. 
For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We'll stop there. So here's the first room. It's in the house of a leper. And there, there is an anointing. An anointing. Before we get to that anointing, though, which was itself shocking and scandalous, we have a bit of a shocking and scandalous thing just with the place in which this happens. We're told this is in the house of Simon the leper. You see, in the Old Testament, leprosy made someone ceremonially unclean. 
In fact, those who touched a leper would themselves become unclean. In fact, those who touched where a leper touched would also themselves become unclean, even if they didn't catch the leprosy. Lepers in those days were required by law to yell out through the city, unclean, unclean, just to warn everyone around them that they you know, needed to get out of the way. But we learn pretty early on in Matthew's account of Jesus that this clean and unclean thing doesn't quite apply to Jesus. In Matthew 8, there a leper reaches out to touch Jesus that he might be healed by Jesus. And what will happen? Will Jesus backhand him? Will Jesus do a dance like he got some bugs on him? No, Jesus doesn't do any of that, and, and neither does he get leprosy, and neither is he unclean. You see, his purity is so powerful that Jesus' cleanness carries to the man. Jesus makes the unclean clean. He heals the man of his leprosy. And if we know something like that, when reading in Mark 14, then we can rest easy and maybe even smile to hear that Jesus and his friends were hanging out one day in the house of a leper. Isn't that just like our Lord going to the hurting, the needy, and those in desperate states? But then the other potentially scandalous event happens when a woman comes in with a flask of expensive perfumed oil and she pours the whole bottle on Jesus' head. In our culture, the scandal and the offense of such an incident would be that someone messed up your hair. Someone really made a mess. How are you supposed to go through the rest of your day with oil head? Thanks a lot lady, we might say. But this was no mean trick on Jesus. This was no prank. This was an effusive and extravagant way to honor him and bless him. The flask of oil, we're told, is worth something like 300 denarii. That is 300 days of a day's wage. So this might be $30,000 in our money today. And so the disciples think that her act is careless and senseless and a waste. You know, they say essentially, hey, lady, $30,000 goes a long way towards helping the poor. But Jesus says she has done a beautiful thing. And what's more, he says, verse 8, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I don't think she knew that she was doing it for that purpose. I think she likely only meant to portray extravagant and expensive honor. But Jesus takes the opportunity to once again remind his disciples that he is about to die. The writing is on the wall in the oil dripping down his face. And then Jesus adds these truly remarkable words in verse 9. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, I don't think this is hyper-literal. 
in that every time the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed anywhere in the world, people should use her story. And that's not it. I mean, for one, it's just here in Mark. And so every time Mark is read all over the world, her story is told and she is sort of honored. But maybe more to the point is Jesus saying, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, so why is Friday good? Well, because it's not going to end in death. It's not going to end in burial. This is not the high point. This woman pouring out $30,000 of perfume on Jesus. The gospel will be proclaimed in the whole world. Now, secondly, let's go into the chambers of the priests with Judas who's there for betrayal. Remember from verse 1, the religious leaders were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And they get their opportunity in verse 10 when Judas shows up into their chambers. And he's looking for money. And he's looking for opportunity. And they find with Judas... A good deal. They promised to give him money. They were glad. And Judas began to seek the opportunity to betray him. Again, the writing is on the wall. This conspiracy to arrest Jesus and have him killed was long ago mentioned. We, we would hear it all through Mark if we were reading carefully, even back as early as chapter 2. But now it's growing, this this scheme, this conspiracy, this plot is spreading. Now someone on the inside, not just the outside, one of Jesus' own men joins in on the plot. And we might think here that maybe this is spinning out of control. But no, this was prophesied long ago that one of Jesus' close friends would betray him. This is why later on Jesus will pass this news on to the rest of the disciples that this is going to happen. It's not because he suspects one of them and he's not sure which one. It's because he knows hearts. He knows the plan. He knows what's going on. It's a small visit here in the chambers of the priests. What a short scene it is. It leaves us with a, a lot of unanswerable questions. We want to ask Judas, why? What's the motivation here? Was it just for the money, the 30 pieces of silver we find out from other accounts? Well, we do find out from John 12 that Judas was the treasurer of the group. And he liked to occasionally dip into the money bag for himself. So greed certainly seems like a fitting motivation for Judas selling out his Lord and Savior. But regardless, we can feel the, the clock ticking, that the time is getting closer. Like each commercial break in that TV series 24. Bong, 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 bong. You know the hour is almost done, it's moving fast. But it's not yet. So let's go into one more room, the third room, the upper room, for a pivotal meal. A pivotal meal in the upper room. 
The preparations for that meal are made in verses 12 to 16. Isn't that a fascinating little window into what's going on here? They wonder where they're going to celebrate the Passover. Jesus has it all lined up. Once again, we can see his orchestration of events here. And whether he's arranged the details with this unknown homeowner in advance, privately, apart from his his disciples' knowledge, or whether this is something more along the lines of the miraculous, I think it's the latter. We can't be sure, but I suspect it's the latter. You see the details? They're such fine details. Jesus says, you're going to find a man carrying water. But in those days, men didn't carry the water. You might say, well, that's chauvinistic. Well, I know, but that's not the point. The point is, in those days, men didn't carry the water. The women did. And so a guy carrying the water would look a little bit more like a guy having a purse these days. <laughs> Never mind. That may be more common these days than, we, than it used to be. But this is who you're going to look for. This is what you're going to say to him. You're going to follow him. He's going to bring you to a house, and you're going to say, where's the room? And he's going to point you to a large upper room. And that's where you'll prepare the Passover. It was just as Jesus told them. And then this proper meal begins. You can imagine them settling in. It's been busy. There's been some crazy talk of Jesus dying. You know, you keep hearing of increased threats. Finally, you're in a secluded room for the Passover meal. Just the 12 and Jesus. The, the, the lucky 13 that, man, they've spent two or three years together now. They're close. There's a warmth about this, I'm sure. There's a, somewhat, somewhat a safety about this. That's when Jesus tells them that one of them would betray him. Now we could talk more about that betrayal, talk more about the disciples' reaction to the betrayal. But let's get to the Passover itself, because that's the main purpose. I don't know if you noticed that, but the word Passover is all over this passage. It's in verse 1, and then it's twice in verse 12, and then in verse 14, and then in verse 16. This is Passover. What was the Passover? Well, for those of us who were here on Sunday morning and you've been with us in recent days, we've been studying the book of Exodus together, uh, you've, you know very well what that first Passover was. We were just talking about it last Sunday in Exodus 12. But for those of you here who you might not know or you need a reminder, the first Passover was a night of judgment and salvation in Egypt, back about, well, more than a millennia before Jesus. You see, back then, God had warned one night that, that he was going to come through the land in judgment. And both Jews and Egyptians were under that judgment. The Jews were not spared that night because of their ethnicity, but only because God had provided a way of salvation for them. So those who trusted God were to sacrifice a lamb, and they were to take some of the blood of that lamb and then apply it to the door frames of their homes. 
And so when that night God rolled through town in judgment, he would pass over those homes that had blood applied to their door frames in faith. As we said on Sunday, this shows us something of how our God saves. Salvation comes by substitutionary sacrifice. The innocent in place of the guilty. So God saves not by looking the other way, sweeping things under the rug, or giving the most optimistic interpretation of your intentions and motives. Neither does he grade on a curve. God does not save like that. He saves with substitutional justice. He saves from death by death. And that's exactly what happened that night in Egypt. Judgment fell on those homes which had no blood on the doorpost. They had no sacrifice. They had no faith. But with those homes in which the blood had been applied to the doorposts in faith, judgment passed over. Well, the Jews were to commemorate that very night yearly going forward. They called it the Passover meal. It was meant to remind them of God's salvation and how he saves and their guilt and that he led them out. It helped them live in light of God's salvation, we could say. And for over a millennium, God's people had been practicing that yearly Passover meal. That's what Jesus and his disciples are doing this very evening. Except, I said, it is a pivotal meal. It's not just a Passover meal. It's a pivotal meal. We sometimes call this supper in Mark 14 the Last Supper. That's the picture you see depicted up there on the screens. That's, if I said, what's that? You might say, isn't that the Last Supper? Yes, it is. And it's the Last Supper in that it was Jesus' last meal with his disciples before he would die. And it's also the Last Supper in that it was the last Passover. The last Passover was also the first Lord's Supper, as we have come to call it since. You see, Jesus, all at once, he was celebrating the old Passover, and he was fulfilling that Passover, and he was thereby instituting a new meal in its place with greater new significance. And that transformation, even if they couldn't get it all, all at once, the transformation of something afoot, some sort of change, some sort of shift taking place that had to be obvious to those disciples in the upper room that evening. Let me explain why. You, you see, it was common in these Passover meals, the old Passover meals, for there to be a, a, a person who presided over it usually the head of the household, perhaps the patriarch of the family, someone would be in charge and someone would distribute the different elements of the meal one at a time and he would explain each element and explain its symbolic significance. So they would come to the unleavened bread and, and the one presiding over the meal would teach those there 
that it's unleavened because the Israelites that night had to leave Egypt in haste. No time for yeast to rise. Or they would come to the, the bitter herbs and they would explain, one would explain that they represented the bitter slavery that God had rescued his people out of. Well, in Mark 14, it's no surprise that Jesus would be the one presiding over the meal. But what would be astonishing is when he started to explain the elements and what they represented so differently than any other time these men had heard this meal before. Again, notice verse 22, he took bread. Okay, they've seen that before. And after blessing it, giving thanks to God for it, yeah, that's, that's part of the Passover liturgy. Well, then he broke it. Okay, nothing new really. And he gave it to them. Okay, yeah, we all have it. Same old, same old in a sense. But then he said, take, this is my body. What? What? And what's worse, what's more, not worse, but what's more is he took the cup. And again, he goes through a routine. He gives it to them. They all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. His blood in covenant poured out for many. Now, I don't think those words were shocking to the disciples because they were taking those words literally. I don't think they thought, wait a minute, Jesus, are you really saying that your physical body is in this bread? Are you really saying your blood is in this cup? No, Jesus used symbols all the time. He said he was the door, but no one thinks he actually turned into a door. He said he was light, but no one thinks he was glowing. These are metaphors. He was saying that this bread represents his body, which was going to be torn. This cup represents his blood. This together, these together symbolize his death. What was shocking was that Jesus was making this meal all about him and all about his coming death. And so it's fitting for the Apostle Paul later on to put so succinctly in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Notice, it's done. Has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb, well, there was that Passover lamb long ago. There were the yearly sacrifices, sure, but Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The old Passover was, you know, pointing back to that first event in Egypt, showing God's people how he saves and reminding them of how he would one day save and also pointing ahead to a day when he would save so much more, so much better, so much bigger than he ever had before. You see, the problem of sin is so great that we need something way more than just a one-night reprieve or a reminder once a year. 
We need a once for all, finished and complete sacrifice. We need a new covenant. That's the proper title of the covenant that Jesus mentions in 24. Verse 24, he says, the blood of my covenant, that's the new covenant. And let me read about it in Jeremiah 31, back 600 years before Christ. There Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Well, what Jesus was saying that night in the upper room is that his death and resurrection is going to bring in this long ago promised new covenant. Now, if you're not a Christian, or you're fairly new to the Bible... You should know that we know that we're kind of swimming in the deep end of the pool of the Bible. And so if your head is spinning a bit, trying to keep some things straight, you're thinking meals, Egypt, Israel, Jerusalem, covenants, blood, good grief. Well, just know that we're sort of wading into the eye of the storm of the Bible. You know how our, our big eye here in town, that that interstate exchange with I-25 and I-40 and all of the crazy ramps going in all directions at that location. Well, we're sort of at the big eye of the Bible here in Mark 14. There is a lot going on. But, but like driving on the big eye uh, can be a little intimidating the first time. You eventually get used to it. It's not that hard to get around. So stick with it. Stick with it. Or perhaps I can simplify it like this for you. If you're not a Christian or you're new to the Bible, let me just put it real low shelf. Do you believe that you have gone astray from God? You've done wrong. You've sinned against him. Well, that's the bad news of the Bible. There is bad news to own, to accept, to receive and acknowledge but do you believe even more that there's nothing you can do to fix it? This problem is outside yourself. You're not going to fix it by being better. You're not going to fix it by trying a little bit more. No, that's the even badder news in the Bible. There's bad news. We've all sinned. There's badder news. We can't fix it. But do you believe that God offers forgiveness of all your sins in and through Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross? Well, that is the good news. You should believe it. And here's the gooder news, if I may. The gooder news is that to receive that, you simply ask him for it. You do nothing to earn it. You can't. You simply turn from whatever form of self-salvation you were trusting in before, whether that was Buddhism or good works or, or making money. You turn from that and you just cling to Christ. 
That's it. Maybe tonight for the first time, you would confess what we sometimes sing together as a church. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing I do can for sin atone. Not of the good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And if you tonight or sometime previous have come to confess something along those lines, well then you follow Jesus. You begin to follow him. You begin to follow his ways. You begin to walk with him. You begin to commune with him. You begin to, to, to do what he says to do. If tonight was maybe the first time that you've come to believe that you've gone astray and you can't fix it, but Jesus can, and you have come to trust it, well, the next thing for you to do is to follow Christ in baptism. Baptism. We have two symbols in the new covenant baptism and the lord's supper baptism is sort of the front door and then the lord's supper is sort of the family room we get together often and do it the lord's supper is a picture it's a memorial it's given to us to help us remember the apostle paul adds this to what jesus said in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's unpacking the Lord's Supper for that church. He said, do this in remembrance. Do this in remembrance of Christ. You do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper reminds us of Jesus. Not that we totally forgot, but that we need him at the forefront. We need to think through all that this teaches us and reminds us of. And so ponder this. The Lord's Supper, this concrete thing of bread and cup, reminds us of the great cost and the great violence that was done to our Savior for, uh, for us, for our salvation. And this shows us his love, doesn't it? And that's why Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, could say that the Lord's Supper is like spectacles. He says, Use the Lord's Supper, these elements like spectacles. He says, what do people use spectacles for, glasses? To look at? No, to look through. So use the bread and wine as a pair of spectacles. Look through them and do not be satisfied until you can say, yes, yes, I can see the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. The Lord's Supper reminds us that it is finished. The Lord Jesus is not in this bread or this cup. He said it is finished. He was raised in the third day and he ascended on high and reigns at the Father's right hand. This meal reminds us not only of what he did, but that he did it and it's done. He is not here. It does not need to be re-sacrificed. The Lord's Supper reminds us that our hope lies outside of ourselves. It lies outside of us. It's not in our good. It's in what he did. It's not in my best intentions. It's what has already been done. 
Again, Brother Spurgeon says, you are taught in the Lord's Supper that the very best way in which you can remember Christ is by receiving him. You're not asked to bring the bread with you. It's here. You're not asked to bring a cup with you. It's already provided. What have you to do? Nothing but to eat and drink. You have to be receivers and nothing more. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the necessity of taking it. You got to take it. You got to take him. But also the ease and the simplicity with which we take it. What do you do to take the Lord's Supper? You put it in your mouth and you swallow. And down it goes. You know, imagine a a really powerful new drug that could just cure cancer with the swallow of a pill. And a man would take that pill and be totally cured. His friends would say to him, what'd you do? Could you imagine him saying, I'm a really good swallower. I swallowed it so hard so that it would hit the bottom of my... No, it's stupid. The pill did the work. He simply took it in. Lord's Supper reminds us that Christ not only saves us, but he is with us and he sustains us and he even satisfies us. Now, I know this bread would be a little better if we had a pat of butter next to it. It symbolizes satisfaction, not in that it's the best bread or the best juice. But but, but the way food satisfies us and sustains us, so this meal reminds that Christ satisfies and sustains us. He keeps us going, and he keeps us relatively happy. The Lord... Supper reminds us that we as Christians share in this. We share Christ and we share in Christ together. And that's why we're here together to partake of this. That's why we didn't mail out little Lord's Supper packs and say, you know what, on Good Friday, let's all partake at the same time but in our own homes or turn on your favorite praise music in your car and do it there. No, we've come together tonight to express the oneness and to, per, and to express what we share in Christ. The Lord's Supper also reminds us that he's not done, that he'll come again. In Paul's account of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, we proclaim the Lord's death when we do this until he comes it points ahead not just behind and that's in mark 14 as well verse 25 jesus says truly i say to you i will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when i drink it new in the kingdom of god yeah there's coming a day where there is this consummate final feast celebration, completion of everything. This is a meal to get us through, in a sense, to to have us pilgrim on. It's not the final meal. There's coming a day. Isaiah 25 talks about it, among other places. 
where there will be a great feast with all the peoples of the world. And God's glory will swallow up the mountain and he will swallow up death forever. He'll wipe away every tear from our faces. He'll take away our reproach. And we will say on that day, behold, this is our God. And we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's what's coming. A day is coming when one memorial feast, as good as it is, actually gets swallowed up and transformed into an even greater feast. That's why Friday is good. It's really, really good.